Good afternoon and welcome to the sixth in our uh, seminar series on health in the 21st century. Um, we have two speakers today um, on hepatitis C and HIV. We're going to hear first from Professor Ellie Barnes, who is Professor of Hepatology and Experimental Medicine, PI in the Institute for Emerging Fe Infections here at the Oxford Martin School. And she's working to develop a hepatitis C virus vaccine. We will then hear um, from Professor John Freighter, who is also PI in the Institute for Emerging Infections and a senior clinical fellow in the Nuffield Department of Medicine here. Um, and he's currently the scientific lead and co-chair of Cherub, which is a collaboration supporting, supported by the National Institute for Health Research dedicated to finding a cure for HIV infection. We will each will speak for about half an hour um, and we will not stop for questions in between. Um, so Ellie will speak and then John and then we will, both will join me up here um, and we will have about half an hour again for a question and answer session. So uh, for, for Ellie's talk, please try and remember your questions um, and then uh, there, there should be plenty of time to uh, ask them afterwards. So I'd like to welcome now Ellie Barnes. So thank, <laughs> so thank you very much for the introduction and it's and it's wonderful to see such a packed room. We weren't expecting it, so that's great. Actually, I'd like to know who the audience is before we start. So can you put your hands up if you're a member of the general public who's just interested in hepatitis and HIV? Okay, a few. Who, who are scientists here who are working in science? <laughs> who are doctors, medical doctors? Okay, so about half of each of those. Okay, so now I know who I'm talking to. So thank you very much. Okay, so the title of my talk is um, Eradicating Hepatitis C, Progress and Challenges in the Next 10 Years. Um, so we should be thinking about this, I think, from a global perspective, because hepatitis C is not a Western disease. And I know hepatologists and their tertiary referral hospitals in the UK think of it like that, but it's really not. There's 180 million people infected around the world. And hepatitis C can be broadly divided into six major strains that are related to each other with about 80% sequence homology between one strain and the next. So there's six major strains, and they're, and they're broadly distributed by geography. So the major strain around the whole world is genotype 1. In the United Kingdom, about half the people have genotype 3 and half have got genotype 1. In Southeast Asia, most people have got genotype 6. In Egypt, you know, genotype 4. And different strategies might be needed for these different viral strains. So that's the first thing to say. Okay, so what is hepatitis C? It's an RNA infection, and it infects primarily, well, probably only, this, this is a bit controversial, but it infects the liver, which is by far the most interesting organ in the whole body, if you're not aware of that. Um, and over... Many, many years it causes inflammation and scarring, and eventually scarring becomes bad enough that that's then known as hepatic or liver cirrhosis. That can result in liver cancer and failure, and associated with that, you get abdominal fluid buildup, loss of muscle, and hemorrhage sometimes from the intestinal tract known as esophage esophageal varices. So those are all of some of the side effects. Many patients don't have any of these, and they're asymptomatic for all of their life, but a substantial number will go on to develop these complications, and we don't really understand why that is. Okay, sorry, you can't hear me, apparently. I'll stand there. Okay, so um, 
One of the issues is after people become infected, they're asymptomatic to start with. So acute infection can be completely asymptomatic. Um, so we often are unable to pick up the infection in these very early stages. Once you become infected, around 80% of people develop persistent infection and 20% of people spontaneously resolve infection. That's quite unlike HIV, where most people, almost everyone who becomes infected, John's going to talk about this, but almost everyone that becomes infected is persistently infected at the moment for the rest of their lives. But hep C is not like that. And what we've been trying to do is to understand the differences in these two groups of patients in our lab, to work out the differences in those people who get resolved infection compared to those who get persistent infection. Okay, so I think we should, over the next 10 years, be able to achieve global eradication of hepatitis C. It's not like inflammatory bowel disease and some of these, you know, these, these other inflammatory conditions. We know what the cause is, and we've got fantastic new drugs for hepatitis C. The treatment of hepatitis C has undergone, is, un, is undergoing a complete revolution at the moment. Okay? But in order to achieve global eradication, we'll have to do all of the following. First thing we'll have to do is to find all the patients who are infected. And since this is often an asymptomatic infection, that's very difficult to achieve. And we're really bad at it because we don't screen people for hepatitis C. Next, we've got to be able to rapidly, efficiently, and accurately diagnose the infection. We don't have routine point-of-care testing for hepatitis C in the UK at the moment. Then we've got to work out who we're going to give, which of the new drugs for, how best to give those and for how long. I'm going to talk more about that because I'm needing a consortium around stratified medicine. Emma Hudson, the project manager, is hiding in the back there, but this is um, a UK-funded program to work out how best to give these drugs to individuals. Very important is vaccination, safe health management and education. And perhaps the most important thing of all is we've got to have the political will to implement all of this. If you look at the um, Ebola outbreak right now, people have been working on Ebola vaccines in a half-hearted way for probably 15, 20 years. It's taken an acute epidemic like this and a real push to get things moving at an incredible speed so that we're now able to make a vaccine, move it into infected people in a matter of months if there's a political will to make these things happen. And that, I think, is going to be the major thing that actually determines whether or not we achieve global eradication or not. Because all the other things, I think, we can achieve. Okay, so the new therapies for hepatitis C are built on 10 years of fantastic understanding of the viral life cycle of hepatitis C. And there's three major drug groups the protease inhibitors, they all end with really difficult names, Provia, so Brisepravir, Telapravir. Polymerase inhibitors, they all end with the end in Buvia, so Sofosbuvia, I still find them very hard to say. And then NS5A inhibitors, they all end with the term Asvia, so Lidipasvia, for example. Um, and th th this has actu actually been you know, built on a real understanding of how the virus replicates and what the end enzyme targets for that are. Right, and this gives you an idea of the drug pipeline for hepatitis C. It's absolutely enormous. And what you've got here, on the outside, you've got the preclinical drugs. Each of these dots represents a single drug. So this is the phase one studies, phase two, phase threes, 
and you know, filed here for licensing. Enormous, enormous activity. And the reason for that is there's an enormous amount of money to be made if you get very effective drugs for hepatitis C because there's 180 million people infected around the world. And actually, what's happened over the last three years, a number of these are now the clear leaders in the field, and the number of dots on this graph is getting less and less and less, and we're left, really, with a few really leading compounds. But that gives you an idea of the amount of activity. Okay, so what we have is the protease inhibitors, the NS5A inhibitors, and the non-nucleoside NS5A inhibitors, all of which are low-barrier to resistance drugs, so they all need to be given in combination with each other. We don't have very many of these on the right-hand side, the high-barrier to resistant drugs. So the way that we're having to give these is to give a nucleotide analogue here, either with an NS5A inhibitor or a protease inhibitor or a non-nucleoside inhibitor, or all of these together, rather like the kind of therapies that, you know, for HIV that have been in use for the last 10 years or so. Okay. Uh, and with each of these, we still need to give this really old-fashioned drug, ribavirin. We've used this for the treatment of patients with hepatitis C for many years, and amazingly, we still don't understand how ribavirin works. But at the moment, all of these do need to still be given with ribavirin. So we've always stratified patients by the viral strain when we've come to give these therapies. We started off back in the early 1990s where we gave interferon by injection to patients, and we got viral eradication back in those days of less than 10% back in 1995. Then we went on and we gave interferon in association with ribavirin, and our SVR rates up went, went up to 50% in genotype 1 and about 70% in genotype 3, about 80% for genotype 2. So right from the very start, we knew there were clear strain differences in how likely you were to respond to interferon and ribavirin therapy. Then about three years ago, we started using the first generation of these oral drugs. And because we understood very much more about the structure of genotype 1, these were designed and they were only effective in HCV genotype 1. But over the last three years, we now have all oral antivirals that are effective for genotypes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And interestingly, the genotype that's proving hardest to treat with the new drugs is genotype 3 which is the genotype that's, that's actually a, the major issue in the United Kingdom. So genotype 3, which used to be seen as the easy virus to treat, has now become the hard virus to treat. Okay, but it's not just the virus that matters, but the host genetic makeup is also important. And one of the most successful genome-wide association studies was performed in hepatitis C, in 2009. So a major genome-wide association study taking thousands of patients who cleared with interferon and ribavirin, thousands who failed, and finding there was a major SNP associated with interferon lambda-3 and lambda-4 that was clearly associated with viral <coughs> eradication. So for the first time, we could look at the host, we could look at the virus and try to understand, could we identify those who we thought were going to respond to interferon and ribavirin? This SNP seems to be much less important in the era of the new drugs, but in the era of interferon, it was extremely important. And what we came to understand was if you had the, the, um, the excellent SNP, CC here, you had an SVR rate here of 80%. Um, if you had an in 
an intermediate type, you had an SVR rate of about 40%, and, um, and if you had this here, your SVR rate was less than 30%. So this was a really powerful genome-wide association study, which we could use to stratify patients for clinical studies. And we began to understand for the first time why African-Americans failed to respond to interferon, whereas those from Asia responded much better. And the reason for that is the favorable SNP was found in Asia and the unfavorable SNP in Africa. And we never really understood the reason for that, but that appears to be the case. Okay, so what we're working on now is to try to understand why some patients respond to therapy. Are we able to identify those who are able to in advance? And this is all underpinned by HIV Research UK, which is a, which is a huge UK effort to collect blood from 10,000 patients across the United Kingdom and stop HIV. It was a stratified medicine consortium funded by the MR. C is working with HCD Research UK. And we're looking at the viral sequence um, and immunology, host genetics here. So all these things interplaying one with another. Okay, um, so one of the things that James Martin's school, the Oxford Martin School, is particularly funding is novel sequence methodologies. And what we're trying to do is amplify hep C from HIV-infected individuals for the very first time in a highly scalable way. And we've managed to achieve that now through um, an RNA enrichment approach. So what this represents here is a single person infected with hepatitis C, 9,000 nucleotides along here, and the depth of the reads that we're able to get here is 15,000 at each of these individual amino acids, and that will give us enormous information about the viral strains within infected patients. And we're going to build that up and do this on thousands of people across the United Kingdom. So I'd like to specifically thank the Oxford Martin School for this piece of work, which I think is really exciting. It's revolutionized the way we can interpret the viral sequence in patients. Okay, now, if we're going to achieve global eradication, we need to, as I, we, we have to be able to identify all of those who are infected. We need drugs that work for everyone. We've got to be able to eradicate the infection faster than one person can, can actually transmit virus to the next. And most, most importantly, the drugs have to be affordable. In practice, the drugs cost between 18 to 35,000 pounds per patient. In the States, the new drugs are $80,000 per person per course. Clearly unaffordable to most places around the world, and that has to be addressed. Most people are unaware they're infected. We've had effective therapy for HIV, and yet these, this is you know, unavailable to millions of people around the world. Why is it going to be any you know, better for hepatitis C? The drugs don't protect you against reinfection, and there's practical issues about giving you know, drugs for 12 weeks or more to people in socially disadvantaged groups, such as injecting drug users who are particularly prone to hepatitis C virus infection. In contrast, the vaccine, an effective vaccine, is the best medicine. There's no doubt that vaccines are the very best medicine. A single shot can protect you from an infectious disease for the rest of your life. And that's what I think we should be aiming for, actually for HIV and for hepatitis C. And that's what I've been working on now for four or five years specifically. So I like in the 
next 15 minutes to tell you about our vaccine approaches against hepatitis C. And the aim of our vaccine program is to prevent people from becoming persistently infected with hepatitis C virus. And the rationale for a T-cell vaccine, which is the kind of vaccine we're hoping to have, is that um, if you look at patients who become persistently infected and you compare those to the resolved infe infection, what you can see is the T-cell immune response is really important. So um, all, the, all the MMR, rabies, all those other vaccines now work by inducing antibodies. And what we're trying to do here is something that's completely different from that and, and induce a whole you know, new arm of the Im immune system. So that's, that's what we're hoping to do. And the evidence that the T-cell response is important comes from HLA association studies. The use of chimpanzees, which are the only animal model for hepatitis C, we can't use them anymore. It's, it's now you know, completely banned, so there's going to be no more of these experiments. But if you block the CD4 and the CD8 T-cells in these animals, and then you infected them with hepatitis C, those animals went on to get persistent infection, whereas the other animals eradicated hepatitis C. And that was very good evidence that actually it's an absolute requirement to eradicate hepatitis C. So I'll just talk you through a study done by um, Folgori et al., published in Nature Medicine in 2008, which was a T-cell-inducing vaccine in a chimpanzee experiment. So what you've got on the left-hand side is five chimpanzees here who received adenoviral vaccines. Um, and you can see that all of those animals spontaneously eradicated hepatitis C after they were infected. On the other side, you've got mock-infected animals, and each of those got persistent infection. Okay, so that was the first proof of principle that a T-cell vaccine could protect chimpanzees, at least, from hepatitis C virus infection. So we went ahead and we used the same almost exactly the same um, approach in healthy individuals um, with the aim of having a preventative T-cell vaccine. So we've been using adenoviral vectors that we know are the highly effective in inducing HCV or antigen-specific T-cell responses. And these host all the non-structural proteins from hepatitis C. So 2,000 amino acids from a single HCV genotype 1B strain. But there's an issue with these, which is that we've all been exposed to adenos before through infections. Um, and so there's pre-existing host immune responses that can block these. So what we have been using is um, ch chimpanzee adenos instead, to which hosts have never been exposed before. Um, and those are extremely effective in inducing very high levels of T-cell responses. And at Oxford, we've been using ADCHIMP3 here and ADHU6 in the hep C vaccine program. And we started off by administering these in a heterologous prime boost strategy, which I'm just going to show you here. So we started off by giving ADCHIMP3 here, followed by ADHU6, 
all the other way round. And this is what we're expecting to see because this was the early information we got when we administered these to macaque monkeys. And we thought when we gave up these to, to um, Oxford um, healthy individuals, this is the kind of response that we would you know, see. In fact, we went on to show that that was not the case and humans are not monkeys because when we gave the adeno, we got a very nice response, as you can see here, whether we gave the adhu6 or the ad chimp 3 here. But when we came in with the heterologous vaccine, we had a highly attenuated response to that. So we spent lots of time thinking, you know, why is that? I mean, I think we came to understand that, that what was happening is that when we gave the first adeno here, we had antibodies which, which inhibited this adeno. So what we went on to do was to replace that with a MVA instead. Um, and what we were able then to show here is that you've got really strong responses when you have this strategy here. So this is when you give a first adeno and the next adeno here, and this is when you give an adeno and you boost with the MVA. Very nice responses, now looking much more like the Akairos animal data. So, so this has now moved on to efficacy assessment in phase two um, in, in 300 individuals who are actively exposing themselves to hepatitis C through um, drug use in, in um, San Francisco, and we expect to have the results of that in 2016. So two years from now, we'll start to understand whether this is going to be an approach which is going to be effective or not. Um, and we look forward to that. So I'm running out of time, so I'm going to move on, and I'm going to end here to say that um, I think that essentially we ought to be able to find individuals who are infected. I think we will have an effective vaccine, um, but I think this is going to be the issue. Are we going to be able to actually implement these? Um, thank you very much. Right, fantastic. Thank you very much. Ellie, thank you very much for a brilliant talk. So Ellie's going to cure hepatitis C. I'm going to tell you how we're going to try and cure HIV. But really, first of all, we'll do a little bit of scene setting um, and just explain where we are now with the epidemic. Some of you may have seen in the news recently that there's been a lot of data released just over the last few days from Public Health England just saying where we are with our HIV epidemic in the UK at the moment. So I just want to review some of that and then talk about what the future is going to look like and really where we might expect this epidemic to go over the next five or ten years or so. I don't think we can look further ahead. So these are AIDS quilts. They're laid out in Washington um, to commemorate people who have died from HIV. 
And I think this is an important slide to show, because HIV to some extent has become a bit of a forgotten disease. You know, we don't see those images of people dying of AIDS that we used to see in the 1980s. Some of you in the audience, not all I suspect, will remember the amazing advertising campaigns of falling gravestones and leaflets coming through your letterbox saying, if you ever have sex again, you will die. You know, it was that simple. You know, it was all pretty terrifying. And that's kind of gone off the radar. I, I, I lecture medical students on this, and you, I show some of the videos from these advertising campaigns, and they look at me like I'm crazy, saying, what's all this about? This isn't HIV. It's nothing like that. And they're right in some ways. It's a completely different epidemic now. But because of that, we've become the victims of our own success in some ways, and it has dropped off the radar. And yet, the numbers underneath all of that are still worrying, and I just want to talk to you a little bit about that. So globally, this is the global picture. I mean, some of this you're going to know already. Some of the stuff you won't know, I suspect a lot of it you'll have forgotten within a few days, but if you can remember any questions for half an hour, that would be good. Um, I'm going to see how the pointer works here. Is there, a, is there a pointer on this, Eddie? Is it the button in the middle? Or? Oh, brilliant, even better, thank you. So, there we go, that's working. So look, this is the burden of disease on the planet. So 35 million people are infected, living with HIV. It won't come as a surprise to most of you because you'll know this, that the majority of this is in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we also do work in places like Bloemfontein, um, KwaZulu-Natal, where the prevalence can be 25, 30% people living with HIV disease. It's quite different in Western Europe. They're quite different epidemics, um, but still they all have their own particular issues. So this is the global picture, around 6,300 infections a day. I think someone sat down with a calculator and worked out about an infection every 13 or 14 seconds takes place. So you can work out while you're sitting here, there are people around the world somewhere every 14 seconds being infected with HIV. So this is still a major problem, even though it's not in the news all the time. But this was the report that was released just in the last sort of 48 hours or so, and has been in, in some of the papers that you might have seen. The Daily Mail's picked up on this. They like this sort of thing. Um, and I just want to give you a breakdown of the figures, because now we have an accurate representation of what is happening in the UK with our disease. So for the first time, we have hit over 100,000 people living with HIV. It's now 108,000 people living with HIV in the UK. The striking figure, and the thing that gets Sally Davis, our chief medical officer, very anxious, is that only 80,000 of those know about it. So about a quarter of the people who are living with HIV in this country do not know that they're infected. Now, the fact that they are infected means they are carrying out risk activities. And if they're still carrying out those risk activities, they're going to be passing that infection on. So there is a huge issue around identifying those people who are positive but don't know it. And in fact, next week, for those of you who don't know, is National HIV Testing Week. And the idea is that we need to go out and sort of identify people who are at risk, people who are having high-risk sex, people who otherwise might have a high prevalence, like they're from sub-Saharan Africa and they've moved to the UK, but they haven't been tested. We need to go out and find these people because there are people out there who are positive. And being tested is really easy now. You can pop down to a GU clinic, you can go see Lucy sitting there, she'll test you. Or you can write off on the internet and they'll send you a little pack. And you can do a blood spot at home, send it off, and you'll get the result either by a call or by a text or something a bit later on to let you know what your result is. And then you can get followed up. So it's been made much more simple, and the stigma is trying to be taken away from this. But this statistic needs to be changed, and there's a big anxiety. So this is sort of breaks down who we worry about in terms of the prevalence. So the majority in terms of new infections is men who have sex with men. The majority in terms of prevalence in the UK, in terms of the number of people living with HIV, is predominantly heterosexuals and predominantly from sub-Saharan Africa. The reason these, this group is a concern is because their prevalence is, is high, but their incidence is going up. This is the group where actually the rates of new infection is going up at the moment rather than going down 
which is happening for the rest of the populations who are at risk of HIV. And this is a major issue. What has changed in that population to mean that incidence is going up? There's a lot of theories going on, particularly in London. 13% of gay men are now positive in London, which is much greater than the rest of the, the population. And we know that some sexual practices have changed. We know that high-risk sex is taking place. There's something called chemsex, which has taken off in certain communities, where you have drug-associated um, sexual activity, which means there's lots of inhibitions are lost, condom use is going down. And these issues all have to be attended to, particularly in the GU clinics, and in the way we provide sort of um, health care in, in the UK. So this is the statistic that's sort of driving a lot of our concerns. So this is new HIV diagnoses. 1981, this is when the virus was discovered. A lot of people are diagnosed, and it goes up here. And a lot of these new diagnoses in the UK were predominantly sort of diagnosing those people from sub-Saharan Africa who were living with it. So it tails off a bit once they, most of those were diagnosed. Then there's a little bit of a blip here, but it's sort of plateauing off. But underneath that, there's this rise in incidence in the gay male population. If you look at this number, which is AIDS and deaths, this has come right down. Here's 1996. This is when three-drug antiretroviral therapy hit the scene, and we could start treating this infection properly. And it was at this point that AIDS and deaths sort of came right down to sort of negligible levels. The key issue here is the gap between new infections and people dying, if you like, of AIDS, if you want to look at it brutally. So people are still being infected, but they are now living much longer. They are living potentially. If you treat someone, if you get infected tomorrow and you go on an antiretroviral therapy early and promptly, your life expectancy is now the same as if you were HIV negative. So we have a population, therefore, of people living with HIV getting older. A quarter of the people in this country with HIV are now over 50. Okay, it's a different population. It's not just the young gay men or, or young um, heterosexual Africans. They're, they're a completely different population. And that comes with its own risks, which is not going to go away. And prevalence year on year is going to keep getting higher. And I don't think we're ready to deal with that yet. So this has been the savior. If, you have to write a, an, if I say to the medical students, if you need to write an essay on one of the major medical breakthroughs of the last century, I think, well, I'm biased, but I think that antiretroviral therapy is right up there. No, 30 years ago, we discovered a new virus, and now we can treat it in life. And it was a fatal virus. You know, this virus killed you. And now, if someone is, it turns up to clinic, they can be treated and life expectancy restored. And I think this is quite miraculous, what has happened. And again, like from what Ellie was talking about, driven very much through pharma and the relationship with academia and pharma working together. Um, and to some extent, we can, we've, we've had a few years' advantage over the hep C people, but the approaches have been very similar in terms of targeting specific enzymes. But this is how we treat our patients. Every drug regime has to contain three drugs which work at different points in the virus. The aim is to bring the virus, the level of virus in the blood down to undetectable levels using the assays that we have. So you can take a few teaspoons of blood from your patient, you can look and say how much actual viral RNA is there in that patient. And we have standard assays that can detect to sort of a, a set low limit, and it seems to work pretty well. If your virus is undetectable, your immune system responds in terms of your CD4 T-cell count, and you do well, you don't, you don't become unwell. So you decline, you delay the decline in your CD4 T-cell count, which is the kind of the measure of your disease and it slows clinical progression. The analogy that people use for this is to imagine a train charging towards a cliff edge. Okay, the distance you are from the cliff edge is your CD4 T cell count. The speed that the train is going at is your viral load. Okay, so the higher your viral load, the faster the train, and as your CD4 count declines, you progress towards AIDS and eventually death. Now, there, you have to have three drugs in your cocktail because this virus is very good at mutating. And what we think is that in any one person who's infected with HIV, who's not on therapy, possibly every single mutant is present in the body at any one time. Every single variant is circulating, maybe just one or two of them, but they're there somewhere. So if you give a drug 
and the, the virus only has to mutate one of its amino acids or one of its nucleotides to become resistant. That variant's probably there already. And we saw that in the early days when we just had a single drug like AZT. So you, kind of, you do well for a bit, but then very quickly the virus becomes resistant and comes back again. If you give two drugs, statistically, there is still probably a virus somewhere hiding that has two mutations in its genome. And so that virus will then grow out and repopulate. If you give three drugs, the stats tell us that it is very unlikely that you have a virion that has the three correct mutations in its genome at any one time. And so with three drugs, you have a sort of barrier, and the virus cannot overcome that. So at least one of those drugs will be infective, and probably all, and therefore you can suppress viremia. And so it was that change of bringing three drugs onto the scene that has made a massive difference in what we've been able to do. Now, the issue here, as we'll get on to, is that this is not a cure. If you're a 20-year-old person, you're diagnosed with HIV in the middle of London, you have to take antiretrovirals for the rest of your life. And I don't know how many of you have ever had a course of antibiotics. I suspect most of you. But if you miss one of your antiretroviral doses, the chance of you becoming drug-resistant is significant. And if you've taken a course of antibiotics, I bet one of you has at least missed one or two of your doses, and that's just when you're taking it for a week. Imagine you're taking it for the next 70 years. You know, we've only been handing out these tablets around sort of 15 or 20 years or so. So actually, this is a really young disease. You know, if we think we've understood this, we don't. There's a long way to go. We've got many years ahead of us trying to work out what is going to happen in the long term. So we're doing well. There's no doubt about that. But there is a new chapter opening now as to what the longer-term management of this epidemic is going to be and what these drugs are going to do to you after 70 years of taking them. I mean, taking them for 10 years, you seem to do okay. But 10 years and 50 years could be very different. So it's not a cure. So where are we going to go with this? Do we need a cure? These are all the drugs that are out there, just kind of to highlight quite how dramatic this has been. I mean, we used to just have AZT. It was a cancer drug that was found on a shelf somewhere in, in the early 1980s. And there's been enormous expansion in the drugs that are available. And some of these are incredibly potent. They work incredibly well. And this has been a major breakthrough. There was nothing like this um, before the HIV epidemic came along. So how do we use the drugs at the moment? So I've told you that antiretroviral is, therapy is very effective, that people will live a long time. I just want to point out two studies and two issues that are currently raising their kind of heads in terms of how we use antiretroviral therapy above and beyond just treating someone with HIV. So the first thing is actually you can prevent HIV infection if someone else is on therapy. So there's an amazing study done a couple of years ago which got a lot of attention. And this study, they showed something which we kind of all expected but hadn't been proven. That you have a, if you have a, a, a couple and one of them is HIV positive and the other is HIV negative, if the HIV positive person is put on therapy, it'll in, almost inevitably, inevitably prevent transmission to the negative partner. So there is a new role there in terms of a use for antiretroviral therapy in terms of preventing transmission. And this has become a major issue. And now we're sort of looking at sort of much larger studies. There's a study rolling out in West Africa at the moment called POPART, where you treat people who are positive, not because they necessarily need treatment, but in order to protect their negative partners. And it'll be interesting to see at a population level if that will be effective. That's reasonably well accepted. This gets people very upset, especially our Daily Mail readers. This is the idea that if you think you're, you're HIV negative and you're going out and you think you're probably going to have sex, okay, but you don't want to use a condom. Well, if you think you're going to be exposed to HIV, you can pop a couple of antiretrovirals before you go out, which means there'll be drugs in your bloodstream when you're out partying, and then when you have sex, you'll be protected 
from any HIV that comes along. So you don't need to use condoms, potentially. You don't need to use you know, any other forms of protection. Now, this gets people very, very upset, as you can imagine, in certain areas of the, of the, of the country. But the FDA have now licensed this in the States. This is an approved use of this drug in terms of preventing infection. And actually, in those areas and in those communities where actually this is something that is an issue, you know, condom use is an issue, frequent sex is an issue, especially in this kind of this era of chemsex, which we've been hearing about, you know, where there's a lot, much less sort of inhibition. This could be important, you know, in terms of preventing infections. And I'd be interested to know what you think about that, you know. A condom prevents HIV, but yeah, so does this. So where, where, do, we, where, where do we kind of draw the line on that? So I'm going to talk about cure for a bit now and how we're going to do that. So this is also a bit of a heady issue. You know, can we cure HIV? Any decent virologist, I don't know if there are any decent virologists in here, but any decent virologist will tell you that this is impossible. You cannot cure HIV. Okay? And I think most of us thought that was true for a, a long time. You know? But there's been a few little glimmers of, of, of evidence coming through. I mean, I would say nothing you'd put your mortgage on. I think I probably have. But you know, nothing you'd actually kind of swear that this is definitely true. We will definitely have a cure for HIV. We can't say that. But there's some stuff coming through now, which I'll show you some of the evidence, to suggest that there's, there's research worth doing to answer that question, is it possible to cure HIV? And I just want to explore some of that with you. So this is the problem. So we've got our patients, we put them on antiretroviral therapy, and they do really well. You stop antiretroviral therapy, so here's time after stopping on the x-axis. And this y-axis shows the virus load in the blood, how much virus is in the blood. And within days of stopping, your HIV therapy, your virus is back up in the blood. And it's not back at, up at low levels. This is a log scale. We're talking hundreds of thousands of copies per teaspoon of blood of virus comes straight back. And you could have been on therapy for five, six, seven years. And then you stop, and a few days later, there it is, straight back again. So this is why you have to stay on therapy for life. And this is why people tell you that there is not going to be a cure. But these are patients who are treated in chronic infection. They're patients who become positive, they'd had a few years off therapy, and then therapy was started. I'll show you some data to suggest that actually if you catch someone really early, within a few months of infection, and you treat them then, there might be a different story, and they, they, they look like a very interesting group of patients. And I'll show you some data on that in a bit. But cure has become very celebrity-focused, and all these people are now wanting to cure HIV. You probably know who these people are. I recognize some of them. And there's been a lot of sort of celebrity groups, a lot of noise being made now about curing HIV, not particularly with an evidence base, but at least there's some money coming into it, which is a good thing. And we can raise some key questions as a result of this. First of all, there is a, a real question to ask, and I know it sounds a bit stupid, do, do we actually need to do this? And I think it's good to, if you do research every now and then to say, you know, why am I doing this? Is this sensible? Because we're doing all right, aren't we? You know, people are living normal lifespans, there's loads of drugs, they're getting cheaper. So do we actually need to cure HIV? I mean, I think yes, obviously. Um, I mean, I th there is this burden, incidence and prevalence on the rise. It's expensive, this disease. It's costing the NHS a billion pounds a year at the moment to treat the 100,000 patients that we have. So this is not cheap, you know, and that's only going to go up. And we have a number of issues in terms of, sort of the psychological association. If you talk to someone with HIV about the fact they're taking therapy for life, there are issues, and I'll show you a few quotes um, regarding that. Um, yeah, so we've just done a survey, because if, if people are doing really well, you know, and then they'll say, well, I'm going to give you a really nasty drug to try and cure you. There's a lot of ethical issues there. So a colleague of mine, Julie Fox, um, at St. Thomas's, has done a survey of around 900 people living with HIV in the UK, saying, you know, what do you want a cure? Would you take part in cure research, even though you're doing well? I mean, what do you think about this? And it's really actually interesting, because we sometimes forget you know, the people out there living with this. And this is just a few of the quotes, which I thought were quite interesting. 
you know, this is a, a black African patient from, from the UK. I want to get rid of HME from my body completely. I thought this one was interesting. This is the one that sort of struck a chord with me because we see these patients in the clinic. And this is a lady from Bulgaria. And she just said, listen, after 15 years, I'm getting quite tired of taking these drugs every day. You know, and that's 15 years. You know, she's got another 50 years potentially ahead of her of doing this. So you know, I think that, that for me kind of is enough of a message to say, you know, the patient groups really want us to do this. So what's the problem? Well, HIV camouflages itself really well. Now, the virologists in here will know all about this, but I'll go through it anyway. You might be able to see the spider hiding there. This is just an excuse to show a picture of a spider. Um, but this is the science behind it. So here's a, here's a sort of little image. So here's three viruses, and they're about to infect some T cells. So this is HIV, and the T cell on the right is the one that we've been thinking about for the last 25 years or so. So the virus comes in, it integrates its DNA into our host DNA, it makes lots of more viruses in the process, making new proteins and other things like that, and the cell probably dies as a result. And this is where all our therapies act. All our antiretroviral therapies work on this cell here. However, at the same time, there's another CD4 T cell that's being infected. And in this cell, the virus has come along, it's integrated its DNA into our DNA as before, but then nothing happens. Okay? The cell effectively goes to sleep at this point, and it can rest and stay hidden away for many years, okay? It can divide quite happily without producing virus, and it can replicate, and its progeny will go on. But at some point, that cell might choose to wake up its virus, and that virus can then go on and take the infection off. And we don't know when that's going to happen. And that's the problem, because there are many of these cells in the body, and they can wake up at any time. So that's why you have to be on therapy for life. We call these cells latently infected, and we call the collection of those cells the reservoir. And the main, one of the main features of research at the moment is to say, can we measure the reservoir in the patients? Okay, and there's been a big drive to say, you know, we've got assays that we can use in the clinic to measure sort of virus in the blood, but can we actually measure these reservoirs, these latent resting cells that are hiding away? And they're really hard to find. They don't express any protein. All you've got is a bit of DNA hidden within your chromosome somewhere, and can you pull that out and make some sort of sense of it? And we're starting to get some data to say that actually it looks like this really matters. And if you can understand the reservoir, you might be able to understand how you can take forward progress towards a cure. So, the cells are important. The, the other issue with the reservoir cells is that they can be anywhere. They're not just in the blood. We know there are plenty of them in the blood, but they're also in the gut, maybe even a thousand times as many in the gut as there are in the blood. They're in the genitourinary tract. They're even in the brain. They're in the bone marrow, probably, as well, which makes research on this thing quite interesting. So this is one, one of the reasons you do a survey, because you're not saying to the patient, could I have 20 mils of your blood? You're saying, can I have a litre of your blood? And while I'm there, can I take a gut biopsy, if you don't mind, and maybe a few other biopsies and a few tonsils and things like that as well. So it's really invasive, and you're going a long way and getting a lot of stuff to find those very, very rare cells. There are a lot of issues in terms of actually doing this research, which makes it very difficult. So while we're all doing this, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on at the same time. This is one of the cure is very emotive, and a lot of people have got their own opinions on cure. This was a report on the, on the BBC website a little while ago. And I see clinic patients in clinic like this, Lucy May as well, but there are many other people telling you that a cure is possible without any evidence base. And you know, maybe that's a bit controversial for some of you. Um, and we've had patients who've stopped therapy because they've been told they can be uh, kind of treated um, through faith or through prayer. And there have been deaths associated with that. So I think we as a community of researchers talking about cure need to be really cautious on the sort of message that we put out and be very cautious in terms of saying, you know, how realistic this is. Because otherwise there are going to be problems and people are going to stop therapy when they shouldn't be. There are other people who are curing it in different ways. This is an Egyptian general. I don't know if you can read that. He, you'll be pleased, Ellie. He's cured HIV and Hep C, which is great. 
Um, he's done it with this machine here. And what he does is he points this thing at you and he presses a button and you're cured, which is fantastic, obviously. Um, you know, it kind of puts us out of a job in a way. But this is out there. This was in the New York Times. Um, and this is, the, this is the very famous case of the Gambian president who's got a herbal cocktail. And he's cured HIV as well. The, the upside of this was that actually a lot of people came forward in Gambia for testing. Because you know, they heard that they could be cured. So they thought, well, I'll come and get tested now. Um, so that was the upside. Um, five people like that, which I thought was quite a lot. Um, <laughs> so we've talked about cure. Only I'm one person, and you may argue with me, but there is only one person on this planet, I think, who has been cured of HIV. And this is him. This is Timothy Ray Brown, also known as the Berlin patient. He was a chap in his 40s. He was HIV positive, um, and he developed acute myeloid leukemia, a blood cancer. And as part of the treatment for that blood cancer, he had a bone marrow transplant with a very unusual form of white cell, a white cell that was circulating normally in the, in the population, but which is resistant to HIV infection. And what was striking about this man is that after that bone marrow transplant, the virus didn't come back again. Okay, and it looks like what happened was his body was reseeded with these white cells that were resistant to HIV infection. And as a result, following that and all his other therapy, he had chemotherapy, he had radiotherapy, he had various sorts of immunotherapy. It nearly killed him. But at the end of it, when they stopped his antiretroviral therapy, the virus didn't come back again. And people have looked really hard to find the virus. They biopsied everything. There's not a lot of him left. But what is left is very happy because he's now HIV negative. And he's been persistently HIV negative for about seven years now. Um, and is essentially, he is a cured patient. He is the upside. There's been a lot of news. And it's actually, this has been quite a bad year, in a way, for cure research because we've had a lot of false starts. You may have heard of the Boston patients. So there are two patients in Boston who also had stem cell transplants. They didn't have this sort of special cell type that the Berlin patient had. They had a lot of the other therapy that went with it. And in particular, they had something called a graft versus host reaction, which was the graft amounts an immune response against some of your own cells. And they were thought for the Berlin patient, that was an important part of his cure. So the Boston patients, these two chaps, both had the same sort of bone, uh, bone marrow transplant. Using the best assays, the best tests they had available, they could not find any evidence of HIV left in these patients at all. Okay? There was some theory that they might be cured. However, some of you may have read this in, uh, in the last year. Their therapy was stopped, and they did okay for a few weeks. You know, it didn't come back straight away, but it came back in both of them. And it came back with a vengeance. You know, it didn't just start trickling up in the bloodstream. It came back at very high levels, and both patients got quite unwell and had to go quickly back onto therapy. And there's a concern there. Because if we think we can measure this stuff, and if we think our assays work, these patients looked, according to our assays, like they were cured, and they clearly weren't. The other case that got a lot of attention was the Mississippi baby that some of you may have seen on the news as well. This, was a, this is a case of, of failure of antenatal care, actually, rather than cure. This was a mum who turns up um, in the States pretty much in labor. She hasn't been HIV tested as she should have been as part of her, um, her, her prenatal care. She, I mean, she had a chaotic lifestyle. I think she was an intravenous drug user. She turns up in labor. Labor progresses really quickly. Okay, and they find out she's positive during labor, but there's no time to treat the child during the actual labor or give the mum any antiretrovirals. The baby is then born and given antiretroviral therapy straight away. So within 30 hours of birth, the child is put on full therapy. Viral load comes down in the baby. The baby responds really well. The baby is clearly infected. And the baby does well for a few months. Mum takes the baby to clinic, keeps picking up prescriptions, and then mum goes missing. Okay, and no one quite knows what's happening. Mum then comes back a little while later 
and says, well, I've stopped picking up my prescriptions. I've not been treating my child at all. And the child is well. There's no evidence of, of, of uh, virus in this child's blood. So there was a lot of talk about that this child was actually cured. And some of you would have seen that a few weeks ago, after having had many months of no evidence of infection, the virus has now come back in this child. And um, Debbie Persaud, who was the investigator, said it was like being kicked in the stomach when she found out. And she was heavily invested in this. Saying that, you know, she became one of the time women of the year, which is you know, pretty impressive. But that was just for treating a child who actually wasn't cured at all. And so that was a real... That was a setback. And actually, as a result of this child, people said, well, maybe there's lots of other children that we can cure. So there was one in Italy, written up in The Lancet, but that child has rebounded now. There was a child in Canada who they thought they'd cured, and that child has rebounded now. So all these children who had been treated really early as part of a cure strategy have now all rebounded. So, you know, that's, that's quite sobering in terms of that and the Boston patient. So it's been quite tough. But... There is, a, there is a, a brighter side to the story, which we've been focusing a lot of our attention. Um, and this is the idea of treating very early. And if you can identify someone within weeks of being infected and treat them, then something unusual seems to happen. This is something called post-treatment control. And it really kicked off in France, believe it or not, where they identified a group of patients called the Visconti cohort who'd started therapy. They'd been on therapy for a number of years, and then they'd stopped. And the virus didn't come back. Now, I'll show you a little bit of data about these patients. I know that's a dreadful slide. I'll explain why I've done that. Okay, so each row represents a patient, all right? But these are the numbers I want you to look at. So these are the number of months of antiretroviral therapy these patients had. I don't know if you can make that out at the back. But the median, which you probably can't see, is about this 36 months. So they had about three years of therapy. They were infected. They went on quickly to therapy, and then they took it for three years. They then stopped. And this is the, these are the number of months they have been off therapy without the virus coming back. Remember that very first slide I showed you? The virus comes back in days. These patients have had a meaning of 89 months now um, without the virus coming back. And if you had cancer, I know it's not necessarily a fair analogy, but if you have cancer and you have chemotherapy and radiotherapy and all the treatments, and five years, six years later, the cancer hasn't come back, your doctors might start to say to you, well, I think you might be cured. Okay, can we say the same thing with HIV? Or actually, are all these 14 patients, will their virus come back at some point? But you know, 89 months is quite a long time for a virus with a life cycle of two days. You know, this is quite a good replicating organism. Have these patients been cured? I don't know. I think there's a reasonable chance that they have. And in fact, they've got 20 of these patients now. I don't know if there's any French people here, but the French won't release any of their samples, so we can't test any of this. But it does look very interesting. So one of the issues around this then, so if this is true, you know, if you give therapy really early, and it induces a period of remission in a patient. And we can think of it in remission in the same way you think of cancer as a remission. Can we start to explore that to see if we understand the mechanism? And actually, we don't understand the mechanism in these patients. Their immune responses are pathetic. There's a group of patients called elite controllers who get inf infected. They make fantastic immune responses. They control the virus brilliantly, and they don't get sick. Okay. The Visconti patients behave in exactly the same way, but their immune responses are non-existent. They're, they're behaving completely differently. This does not appear to be due to immunity. This is something that therapy has done okay, to these patients. Because before they had the therapy, they were not elite. They were just normal patients with high viral loads. And I think this is really encouraging. Because when we look at elite controllers, as we did for the last 10 years, and said, look, if you study an elite controller and you look at their immune responses, we can build a vaccine. Okay? We now know a lot about the elite controllers, but we haven't got a vaccine, okay? And that's because we're trying to adapt what the host is actually bringing into the equation is really difficult. If it is an intervention like therapy that is doing this, 
I think that's a completely different equation. It means that we have done something already to these patients to induce a state of potential remission. And if we can understand what that is, then I think there's a lot of hope in understanding how we can do that for more people. So this is just a simple example of, if you stop therapy, when does your virus come back? Because we could see there's a delay in these patients. So the first question is, can we predict it? So one of the big challenges for the future is to build an algorithm of different biomarkers to say, I'm going to take a number of blood tests and I will use those blood tests to say, are you someone whose therapy I can stop? Because I know that you're going to be safe for two, three, four years. And we're starting to make some headway on that. So this is measuring DNA. If we, we took patients with acute infection, we treated them for a year, and then their therapy was stopped. And as they stopped therapy, we measured their DNA levels in their blood, their HIV DNA levels, sorry, so the amount of virus hiding in these latent cells. And if you stratify by the people with high and low levels of viral DNA, what is striking is it predicted, in whatever statistical approach you wanted to take, but it predicted really nicely when the virus came back. And this was the first time we could actually start to predict remission in people with HIV infection. And again, the x-axis here is weeks, it's not days. You know, some of these patients, 14% of these patients were still undetectable a year later. You know, that's a short remission, but it's a remission that we can work on. So I think that's really exciting. What else is out there? Well, now we're starting to give really toxic drugs to people. Okay, these are chemotherapy agents. Um, panobinostat is a drug they use to treat myeloma. Varinostat is used to treat, treat a mesothelioma, a cancer caused by asbestos. They're not very nice drugs. If you're HIV positive, there is some talk that these drugs might actually help you wake up your virus so that you can then kill it. Okay, because while it's sleeping in its cell, it's not a target. If you can wake it up with these drugs, you can potentially then have another therapy to kill it. The Americans call this kick and kill, as only they would. But they look like they might be effective. And so some of these, some of these drugs are being used. There's, there's a lot of debate in the, in the field at the moment as to actually whether these work. And there's a lot of drugs and sort of different therapies coming from out there that are now going to be tried in patients who are HIV positive. This drug in particular is, is very interesting. This is called prostratin, and it comes from the bark of a tree in Samoa. Okay, and the Samoans have been using this for different sort of things over the, the years. And someone thought, well, let's just see what happens if you throw it in a dish full of HIV cells. And they wake up. They go crazy. So all these cells that are supposed to sleep for ages go mad when you give them prostratin, which is a protein kinase agonist. Unfortunately, it's not a very nice drug. You wouldn't want to take it. But the fact that you can do this, this drug, Briostatin, does something similar and is already being used for other... It's a memory enhancer in Alzheimer's. But actually, it might do something for your HIV as well. So there's some interesting drugs out there. The HDAC inhibitors are this class of drugs that are chemotherapy agents, which are getting a lot of attention. And they unravel your, the DNA in your histones. The histones keep your DNA tightly bound up. And while they're tightly bound up, it means the HIV won't transcribe. If you loosen up your DNA by giving the HDAC inhibitors, this seems to allow HIV to transcribe. Now, there's still a lot of debate about how efficacious that's really going to be. But there's some interesting clinical trials. And been, this has been given to patients now. So the FDA said you could give one dose to this. So Dave Margolis was allowed to give a single dose to patients because they were a bit anxious as to what was going to happen. Then Sharon Lewin in, the state, in, in Australia could give 14 doses. And actually, they showed that the virus was waking up, but it wasn't actually doing anything more than that. It was just sort of, it was sort of simmering in the cells rather than doing anything particularly dramatic. What we want to do, and a trial that I'm working with Lucy Dora as well here in, in the UK, is recruit to actually try shock and kill as a concept in patients. And there's a trial that we're going to be recruiting in the UK as of next year called RIVER. And this is where you take patients with primary infection, these very early ones, who I think are the ones we need to target because they're interesting, 
They have an HDAC inhibitor, one of these chemotherapy agents, and then we have a vaccine, which Lucy's providing. And the idea is that the HDAC inhibitor is going to wake up the cells enough to present a little bit of protein on the cell surface. And if you have the T cells primed ready for that to happen, then potentially you have that combination of waking up and a killing mechanism at the same time. So it'll be really interesting to see if that combination really does work in patients. So it's going to be very exciting to see what the result of that is. And at the moment, it's the only sort of proper randomized control trial of that um, in the world. So it'll be very interesting to see if that approach really moves us forward. I don't think it's going to cure anyone, but I think it might show proof of concept that you can start to tackle the reservoir in ways that we didn't think we could before. So it's, it's a difficult time. Someone said, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? I don't think there is at the moment for HIV, but there's light in the tunnel. Okay, I think we know what the problems are, and we're starting to get an idea of how to tackle them. And that's quite exciting, because we didn't know that before. And there's a long way to go, clearly a very long way to go. We need to be very clear about that. Um, so I mean, these are just the points I thought you might be interested in discussing about. You know, this, this issue around increasing prevalence in an aging patient group, a very different page group, patient group, and the changing sexual practice, and then the issues around cure and how the research is going to take that all forward. This is the organization I help run um, called Cherub, HIV Eradication of Reservoirs. We've got fantastic collaborators around lots of different universities who work with us. We tweet that we're really up to it, so you can follow us if you want to. Um, but I can only give this talk because I work with brilliant people, actually, and um, particularly the people at the Peter Medawar Building, uh, the Radcliffe Department of Medicine in Oxford listed there, and colleagues around the country, and all these people who support us, and obviously the Oxford Marsden School, who have helped us enormously get all this off the ground. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much to both Ellie and John for two fascinating talks. As I said, we have about half an hour for questions now. So, um, and there are two roving microphones. So if you put up your hand, a microphone will come to you. Um, I should tell you that uh, we're filming and webcasting this. So if you don't want to be filmed and webcast, don't ask a question. Um, but I'm sure some of you don't mind. <laughs> um, so could we have a show of hands if anyone has a question? Lots, that's nice. Let's go in the front row. The drugs which prevent transmission is because the viral load is so low that HIV doesn't get across, or does the drugs do something to the virus? It's almost inevitably because the viral load is so low, and actually that seems to be, you know, the driving mechanism. Is if you're if you're aviremic, transmission is almost unheard of. And in fact, there's a, there's a, there, was a, there was a statement called the Swiss Statement that was put out a number of years ago, saying that actually if you're a gay man, you know, and your viral load is undetectable, you don't need to use condoms anymore because you will not transmit, you know, because it, it, it just comes down to that stochastic nature of what is crossing over the mucosal barriers. And if you're aviremic, then the chances are, you can't say it's impossible, you know, it depends on how you balance your risks, you can't say it's impossible, but it's extremely unlikely. There's one at the back, yeah. Uh, I also have a question for you. Uh, you said we still weren't able to accurately measure the reservoir, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, We're not able to accurately, we yeah. are not able, yes, correct. So um, I was wondering, since you take rather large blood samples, there's no um, relation or apparent relation between the, uh, well, you can wake them up now, Apparently, so is there a relation between the amount in the blood, or is it completely randomly distributed in the brain? And no. Okay. So there seems to be a relation. So the first, so the first question is, what test do you use? 
Um, and you can take a blood sample and you can do a molecular assay, a sort of PCR-based assay where you sort of amplify the DNA and you can actually measure, you know, how many bits of virus are there in those cells and you can quantify per million cells how much virus you have. And if you do that on average, you found around, around 1,000 cells per million contain uh, a sleeping virus, an integrated virus. If you then take those cells and, and culture them and, and try and grow them up and say, well, which ones of you can actually produce a virus? It's probably only one in a million. So you've got this discrepancy, you know, in terms of the assay that you choose. You know, is it one in a million or is it a thousand in a million? If that was a clinical assay that we're using in the hospital, you wouldn't be allowed to use that to have something that's a three-log difference in terms of your readout. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, and there are assays being developed that are sort of getting some sort of headway in that. So the blood is very informative from that point of view. But then if you go to the gut, and you take biopsies from the gut, and you do similar assays in the gut, then, you know, the levels are completely different again. You know, so the question is, if the virus comes back, and this is the key question, when you stop therapy, the virus comes back in the blood and, and starts to make you ill. Where does that virus come from? Has it come from the blood? Has it come from your gut? Has it come from your brain? And we don't know the answer to that question. So the question is really, which compartment should we be measuring? Because if it's just the gut that comes from, there's loads of immune cells in the gut, then we can just measure that and we're, we're sorted. But we don't know the answer to that yet. Um. Hello, I have a question about the impact of public, possible public health uh, impact of the pre-exposure prophylactis. Because uh, some people do start taking it and then stop using condoms, but condoms do protect not only from HIV, but from other infections. So um, what do you think, how will it influence the prevalence of other diseases? Thank you. Yeah, and I think you ask a very potent question, and there are a lot of people debating this at the moment, and there are a lot of very strong opinions um, going in lots of different directions. I think you're absolutely right. You know, if you are having high-risk sex, then it's not just HIV you have to worry about. I mean, there are plenty of other sexual health, sexually-related infections. H hepatitis C as well, you know, in, in certain practices can be sexually transmitted. So you're right. So if you're, you're at risk, then there are other things you need to worry about. I think one of the particular issues was, and this, that, you know, and that, that's that variety of infections has raised a lot of concerns. I think specifically in terms of the HIV risk where all this was focused, there was the evidence that this might be effective. Now, there are some, there are some trials that suggest it might not be completely infective. So I, I don't think the jury is completely out yet. And certainly we have data from some patients who are positive, who are, who are, ne who are negative taking these drugs, who became positive whilst taking them. So, you know, I don't think the jury's out, and I think there are a lot of issues that still need to be resolved. But as you say, a condom prevents a lot of this stuff happening. It's, I mean, it's much cheaper. There's a very kind of big epidemic over the last few years of acute hep C and men who have sex with men in multiple major cities throughout the West. Um, and that's probably directly as a result of increased risk behaviour um, yeah, in no, HIV-positive yeah, people, really. So it's a big issue. And actually, hepatitis C, I think, now is a major cause of mortality in people with HIV on, on heart. So co-infection, actually, is a, is a very major issue. Um, and actually, within a peachy EU-funded consortium, we're working now to try to develop HIV and hepatitis C T-cell vaccines to give to people um, with HIV so that we can prevent hepatitis C in people with H HIV. I think Eddie's point is really important because actually what we see as well is, is, is people who get reinfected with hepatitis C, so they clear it and then they get infected again. So the idea of having a vaccine around you know, to prevent that would be even more important.
yeah, for the for the hepatitis C vaccine, you described the special T cell vaccine. Sorry, say that again. You described a, a new kind of T cell vaccine. A T cell vaccine, yeah. Why can't normal, more traditional vaccine methods be used? Yeah, sorry, I should have talked about that. But the, 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 the issue with many of the pathogens that we're currently battling with, so HIV, hepatitis C, and malaria, is that the, the outer envelope proteins of those are highly genetically variable. And antibodies work by kind of binding to those and blocking entry. So in a highly genetically diverse pathogen, such as malaria, HIV, influenza to some extent, an antibody-based vaccine, we think, is, is on its own and likely to work. And T cells can work by harnessing the more conserved internal machinery of a, of a um, you know, pathogen. So actually people are trying now to develop T-cell vaccines for, you know, for all of these, malaria, HIV, hep C, and even the Ebola vaccine that's going to be rolled out is going to be partly a T-cell-based vaccine. In fact, that's probably going to be a mixture of CD4 T-cells and antibodies, um, but it uses the same kind of approach using an adenoviral vector with an MVA-boosting vector like we are of hepatitis C. So it, it's, it's an approach that's just kind of taking off, and in the next two or three years, there's going to be large efficacy studies using this, this kind of approach. Um, we haven't yet got a single successful T-cell vaccine out there, but I'd be surprised if, the, if, if that doesn't happen in the next two or three years. And Ebola might actually be the very first. You had a question. I, had, I had also had a question regarding the adenoviral uh, yeah. uh, vector vaccine, because uh, could you elaborate on what exactly is the mechanics of such a vaccine? Because if I remember correctly, I, I, I th thought I heard somewhere that there were some risks associated with using adenovi adenoviruses as a vector. So. Yeah, so historically there was, but that was in adenoviruses that could replicate in the host. So these are adenoviruses that are replicatively defective. So they can't replicate themselves. They go into the host. They undergo one round of replication. They express the antigens, and then they don't replicate more than that. They persist for some weeks or months, but they don't undergo replication. So that's what primarily makes them safe, and that's, that's why we're able to use chimpanzee adenoviruses. Um, they don't themselves replicate. They, they infect a cell, they get into the cell, they infect it, they produce their antigens, they're expressed on the cell surface, um, but they don't themselves replicate. So they've been proven to be very safe so far. And we're just about to give adenoviruses to HIV-infected people, the hepatitis C adenoviruses. I mean, they, they have been used in HIV patients, um, I mean, for many years, but... Okay, and I had another question. Um, Regarding uh, the use, is it possible to use adjuvants to actually increase the response to uh, the adenoviral vector vaccine during the priming? Probably, and we're working on that to some extent. So Lucy and I at the front here are about to start um, an adjuvanted kind of adeno vaccine where within the adenovirus itself we have class 2 invariant chain ligated to the hepatitis C virus antigens within the adenovirus. So that may not be the kind of adjuvant adjuvant you're thinking of where you give it alongside the vaccine, but it's contained within the vaccine itself. So I, I'm sure there is scope to improve on these. Um, yeah. 
Uh, we can. I can hear. <laughs> you just have to shout. We can um, repeat. You mentioned the importance of the political will. I think that's really yeah. Yeah. It's going to cost more to give somebody a transplant. Okay, so how can we make drugs more affordable and how can we make them rapidly accessible? Okay, pharma have got some initiatives for this. So, you know, the cost for sulfosfobia, which is the most advanced hep C antiviral at the moment, is £80,000 in the USA per individual. The price in Egypt is... is, is is estimated to be very much less than that in the hundreds of thousands. So there can be pharma-driven initiatives to actually scale the cost according to the political affordability. Um, but I, you know, I think it's going to be dependent on the political will of kind of governmental, you know, organisations to decide that's where they're going to spend their funds. And in health resource limited environments that's a very big issue you know when you know when you're talking about food and vaccination programs um to try to fund these enormous amounts are, are you know a major issue so i think it's going to require resource poor countries to become less resource poor before we see real you know rollout i think i mean that's been the case for hiv if you've got no. hiv in the uk you get drugs i'm mm. sure in other parts of the world where I guess our parallel is our, our drugs also used to be incredibly expensive, you know, but um, to some extent that was driven down by the generic companies coming in yeah. and saying we can make this, you know, and sell it more cheaply. And I don't know if the same thing you'd expect to happen for hep C because, yeah. you know, that's a very potent argument for pharma to deal with. Yeah, yeah and you had a very powerful patient political organisation mm. in the HIV field. We have less of that in hepatitis C. Um, so we don't have the same patient push at the moment and that may be really... You know, yeah. really important, I think. Yeah. Uh, you said one of the main things that was affecting people's like quality of life when they were on HIV antiretrovirals was the fact that they had to take the pill every day for 50 years. Mm. Are people working on new delivery systems, for example, like uh, I don't know, maybe an injection that would last a yeah. week, or like an implant that might last yeah, a no, month absolutely. or a year, or something like that? So you're you're absolutely right. So there there are sort of and and some of them are available potentially already. The idea of having sort of a, an an injectable that kind of diffuses the drug slowly out over sort of weeks or even months. I think the concern is, and something that has to be sort of dealt with in, in, in terms of that delivery system is that when you're having a tablet every day, you know what your drug levels are, you know, and your levels are high enough, you know, to stop the, the, the virus becoming resistant. Now, we know that this virus becomes resistant very easily. If you have a sort of a, a tapered system that we have to deliver drug for a month without any sort of monitoring, then there is a risk potentially that the levels drop too low and that you could get drug resistance. So that's the concern. But yes, in principle, the idea that you could come up with, and I think we will see that being used, you know, a monthly injectable or something like that, or even longer. And for hepatitis, people are working on that as well, in fact, um, rather than having to administer drugs for 12 weeks in people who really are in chaotic lifestyles very often, a single, you know, a single route of administration would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I would say, sorry to inter in, is, is that what we find is that there's increasing anecdotal and now a, bit, a little bit of evidence base 
to the fact that even if you're taking antiretrovirals, your life expectancy might be normal, but there are comorbidities associated with that. There are other things that seem to be happening. There's, there seems to be good evidence growing that your cardiovascular risk grows up. We're seeing heart attacks more, possibly dementia as well, and people are HIV positive. So just being on therapy is not necessarily enough on its own in the long term in terms of sort of maintaining a well group of patients. This lady at the back who already has a mic. Yes. Hi. Thank you. Um, quickly, I just wanted to make a comment that I think um, in terms of the pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, there are potentially uh, contexts where it may play a imp more important role. For example, where sex work is a really important risk factor for HIV, and those involved in sex work may not uh, have a say in whether a condom is used um, equally uh, in contexts where there's a power imbalance within the domestic household. and the many times the woman may not have a say on whether her husband uses a, a condom. So I think it has an important role to play in some contexts, um, perhaps further outside of the UK. Um, and I wanted to ask a question about, um, you mentioned um, for the hep C that um, Asian Americans but not African Americans responded to, I think it was interferon. And does that indicate that there's um, an, like an ethnic uh, dimension to the, the viral genome or regional dimension and does that, um, impact pharma's role? I mean, does pharma, is, are there regions of the yeah, world so, that may be left yeah. out? So, I mean, there's two things about Asia that gives you a favorable response compared to Africa to interfere on. So if you, if you are in Asia, you're more likely to have genotype 3 infection. And in terms of interfere on, that's, that's, you know, that's an easier drug. But you're also more likely to have the favorable host genetic makeup compared to an African person. Um, I, I, I think what's happened now is that we've got effective new oral agents for genotype 1. That's established. The fight now is on to find a really effective all oral regime for genotype 3 infection. Um, and there's 53 million people currently infected around the world with, you know, with, um, with that. So... Um, at eighty thousand pounds per, you know, course, that's a huge amount of money, and the race is on now to be the pharma company that's able to have an all-effective regime specifically for the Asian strain now genotype three. So, so, so I think eventually it's going to happen for all the different strains in the next two three years. Yeah. So this is an HIV question. I'm wondering, do individuals have to change course? Um, throughout the treatment, you know, 15 years, is it the same three cocktail or, or same three drugs that work, or is it something that changes? And along the same lines, um, uh, you had Miraviric on your, one of your slides, and I, I don't know if I read this correctly, but there was um, some indication that perhaps individuals are becoming resistant to that. I mean, is that something that a small molecule-based drug is, is um, sort of, uh, um, I don't know, problematic, I suppose? Sure. So, I mean, the, the first question is in terms of if you start a three-drug regime, can you just stay on, on that and, and should it work, you know, indefinitely? So, in principle, yes. And we have a number of patients, you know, we start them on a, on a first-line regime. It's well tolerated. You know, there's some formulations now, it's just one tablet once a day that contains all three drugs. So, I remember when we started, it was sort of 15 tablets. You know, some had to be kept in the fridge, some you took with grapefruit juice. It was really difficult. And they were taken three times a day. So, the field has completely changed. So yes, in, in principle, they should work. And virologically, 
generally it'll work. One of the issues, though, is in terms of tolerability of the medications because they're not that pleasant and some people have side effects and so they have to change from that point of view. The other issue that's become potentially important, whether it's going to be increasingly important, is, is unclear, is the idea of transmitted drug resistance. So what we're starting to see, that there's, there's a sort of level around sort of 7 to 8% of strains that are transmitted are already resistant to one or two of the drugs that are available. And so in most centres now, the standard of care to do a genotype um, test of the, of the virus before you start treatment to actually predict whether it'll be sensitive or not. But if it isn't, then you'll have to change regime. And also, if, if adherence for some reason isn't as good, or there are other drugs that the patient takes, that it changes the levels of their antiretrovirals, and we see that a lot as well, then the levels can drop, and so you can get drug resistance, and so you have to switch to another regime. I think the reason for showing you all those, those drugs is actually there's still quite a lot in the cabinet. So if you do fail one or two of your drugs, there's enough to turn to, and we have patients on their sort of third or fourth regime sometimes, but, you know, potentially you could run out. I think you, you mentioned Maravrock and, and in terms of resistance. I think, you know, there's resistance potentially to all these agents. I don't think there's one drug. There's, someone says there's one, one of the integrase inhibitors where they say there's no significant resistance, but actually re in reality, you can get resistance to all of them. We have a question here. It's nice to have so many questions. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> And this is a relatively difficult question. Um, someone mentioned quality. I'm afraid it's going to be both of you. Um, someone mentioned quality of life, and I know this is a very challenging issue given the very, very wide and varied demographic of the people affected. But um, has any effort been made to collect data on, uh, so to speak, multipliers or variables such as people's lifestyles, people's diets, things that might increase or decrease their immune system response and in what manner? Because that would seem to indicate the most cost-effective manner for treatment if those environmental factors can all be brought into line with the treatment that they're receiving. I'm just wondering if that rings any bells with anything. Yeah, so for hepatitis C, there's the first that I'm aware of, really massive initiative to collect quality of life information about what it's like to be infected with hepatitis C, led by AbbVie. Um, they've they, they have an interest, you know, in, you know, in this, but um, it's an excellent thing to be, you know, aiming for, I think. Um, and it's a questionnaire that's gone to all, you know, all over the world. Um, and, and the information we're hoping to get back from that over the next three to four months. It's a really detailed questionnaire about how people's quality of life is affected. And that becomes really important when you're talking about giving expensive drugs to people. Um, so we don't, you know, I can't answer the question yet, but I think in 2015 we'd be able to answer, answer the question. Um, it's probably better done in HIV. I think there are probably more, had, there is more data out there. I mean, I don't know all of it, to be honest, but I think there are certainly sort of significant impacts in terms of other variables and how people, I wouldn't say necessarily respond to therapy, because virologically the therapy sort of overcomes most things. You can maintain undetectable viral loads in pretty much most people who take their drugs well. I think in, in terms of the other effects that we're seeing, and I mentioned this, this issue of, of non-AIDS morbidities, kind of cardiovascular risk, heart attacks, dementia, we're starting to learn a bit about what might be driving that. And so, yes, there are other factors on top that are clearly going to impact quality of life in people who are taking art successfully. But at the moment, it's, it's quite anecdotal. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's, there's an evidence base growing, and I think we'll hear about it over the next few years. I mean, one of, one of the issues is just having an infectious disease for people, irrespective of your health. Just having an, having an infectious disease is a really difficult thing for many people to live with. And I think doctors don't take that into, mm. a, into account 
enough probably that it's just really horrible I think to I think live th with an infection yeah and the stigma is still I mean even now you know when we think we're a bit more open-minded I mean a number of my patients I'm sure Lucy you're the same they won't tell um, even family members that they're positive no one at work knows that they're positive they hide their tablets I've got I've got a mum who won't tell her daughter you know there's there's a huge amount of stigma with HIV yeah. and I'm sure with hepatitis, yeah, hepatitis C as well the same, yeah. and you yeah. thought we'd kind of overcome that by now but we really haven't I can't give you a specific answer, but I mean, for HIV, there is, yes, I mean, I mean absolutely. I, I think for hep C, we're not at a country-specific level yet. I mean, I'm talking about drugs here that are really just out in the last two years, and, you know, tr um, we aren't at that kind of level yet, but, um, you know, it'll happen. But it's not really country-specific at the moment. It's, vir it's viral genotype-specific initiatives that have been done in Western countries, so taking patients with genotype 1, genotype 3. Very little has been done in Asia and China yet with these new hep C agents. It's mostly in the West because that's where the money is and that's where the studies come from and that's where pharma sits at the moment with, you know, with the IP around all of these new drugs for hep C. Yeah. Question here. Um, with respect to HIV, how far have you got with research regarding an antibody? Um, based vaccine? So I'm not a vaccine person. There have been some very interesting studies um, in animal models. So I mean, up until a few years ago, or even sort of a couple of years ago, I would say really not very far, because the antibodies you make to neutralize HIV, by the time they arise in, in an infected person, the person is generally resistant to them already, the virus is already adapted. But recently, they've, they've identified a new, a new sort of class of antibody like that has a much greater ability. And there are some animal models now um, in the macaque model of HIV, an SIV model, where there seems to be control imposed by some of these antibodies. So, I mean, I think the next 12 months will be interesting to see if these can be imposed a bit more. I mean, up until now, people have been looking at T cells as the main control. But I think the antibodies certainly are sort of in resurgence at the moment. Lucy might want to comment on the mm. vaccines. We'll put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> If it works this time, ah, it does work. Yeah. So the Thai. So trial Lucy's a Lucy's a proper vaccine. Don't <laughs> still trying. Um, which reported in 2009. That's the only vaccine efficacy trial that's given any signal of a positive outcome, and that was only a modest efficacy of 31%. And that seemed to be mediated by non-neutralizing antibodies, which is not the kind of antibodies we thought we need. But the fact that they're non-neutralizing is probably why it's only a modest effect and it only lasted a few months. So people are trying to improve on that and at the same time, as John says, try and make, synth you know, make a vaccine that will induce these very special broadly neutralizing antibodies that do occur but seem to be very difficult to induce. We can. We have a question over here. So, um, with respect to HIV, um, do you know if there's a difference in cytokine levels between patients before and after their retroviral drug taking? So, let's say you're taking it for 15 years and then you stop and then you say there's an exponential increase in the virus again, it comes back. Do you know maybe, could it be that the um, immune system somehow gets lazy with this uh, retroviral drug so that it just maybe stops producing cytokines that it needs against the HIV virus? So I think 
you're certainly kind of heading down the right route with it in terms of what we understand. So it's certainly when, when viral replication is inhibited, there's, there's good evidence that antigen production stops alongside. And we see T-cell responses going down very low, you know, when people have been on therapy for a long time. Um, and certainly the sort of the level of reservoir is, is set by your immunity. That seems pretty clear from some of the data we have. What then happens when, when a virus comes back? Is it just one cell somewhere that wakes up and, and then causes the reseeding of the entire sort of viral population? There, there's reasonably good evidence that infection is, is just from one virion, you know, at the time. Only one virion needs to cross from sort of the transmitter to the transmitter to start an infection, and you get this massive outpouring of viral replication. So is it the same thing that's happening um, when virus comes back after you stop therapy? And if so, is the immune system in, in a good position to respond to that? I mean, is, is it quick enough off the mark if you've got some sort of dormant T cells that then have to proliferate and activate to be there? Um, and that was kind of the aim of, of using vaccines as sort of a, a therapeutic approach, and they didn't kind of work as, as well as they, we'd hoped them to. It does seem that the, when the virus comes back, it's pretty stochastic, it's pretty random when that happens. And the data we have and others have as well seems to suggest that it's, the immune response is, is, is not determining when the virus returns, those period of weeks that I showed you in the Viscontis that doesn't seem to be triggered by immunity. What then happens when you become unwell, the virus comes back and your disease progresses, that's when the immunity <coughs> seems to kick in and determines how you do. But in those few weeks, driving when the virus actually comes back, that's in the, the immunity system, as you say, may just be sort of too far behind the game to kind of help with that. But the phenomenon of immune exhaustion we see in the context of many persistent infections. So an immune system that's constantly exposed to antigen, whether that's in the context of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, becomes exhausted. And, and there's big issues in how you're able to recover that exhausted mm -hmm. immune system for pathogens in a broad sense, I think. Yeah. I mean, for HIV, certainly if you start therapy early, you can prevent some of that exhaustion happening. Um, I don't know if it'll be the same for hep C. It'd be interesting to find out. Yeah. Okay, I think uh, we've run out of time, and we may have run out of questions as well, so <laughs> that's perfect. I'd like, um, before we uh, thank John Lilly one last time, just to draw your attention to the final two seminars in this series, um, which lead on from themes that we've been talking about today. Um, next week at the same time, 3.30, um, we have um, Professor Charles Bountra and Dr. Javier Lazaun talking about why we need to reconstruct drug discovery. And then we have a panel of four on the, um, the following week, on the 4th of December, talking about strategies for vaccines for the 21st century. Um, if you want more information about those, go to the website of the Oxford Martin School. Um, and I would just like to close now thanking you all for coming and for your many questions. And to thank our uh, speakers, John and Ellie, both for um, two excellent talks and for some really hugely important and significant research. Thank you very much. Thank you.